Hi, my name is Tom, and I am very glad to be here. I was wondering um, all this past week exactly where Decatur, Illinois was. Um, I'm, I was telling Jackie, who uh, you know, I, I just don't know the Midwest very well, and I've, I've had the chance to been I've been to Chicago a couple of times, and I know you can get a good hot dog at the Chicago airport, and uh, I've been to St. Louis once or twice, but there's a lot I don't know, and. Um, uh, last night, coming in from San Francisco, um, there was chaos at the Chicago airport. And one thing about uh, flying—I fly a lot. Um, the twelve steps really do help. I mean, it's powerless, unmanageable. Uh, I have seen some people behaving very badly in airports because they're blaming the poor person behind the desk for the weather. Um, I was somewhere at an airport, and there was a. Uh, uh, a white male about my age, and he was acting like a seven-year-old, and he was insulting and screaming and shouting, and this was in a foreign country, and he was just so offended that his plane was being delayed. And I always notice that because I'm very capable of that bad behavior, uh, because if I'm not careful, I really think that your inconveniencing me is your fault. And I have a tendency to push people downstairs. <laughs> and I, I don't do that one day at a time, but I, I get that anger, you know. So I know when I go to an airport, it's powerless and unmanageable. Bring a couple of books um, and remember to breathe and have some water. And before you stand in a long line, make sure you pee. I mean, the, the most common sense things that I know, and I have to remind myself of them regularly. I was somewhere, uh, this is in the past year, I was flying from the East Coast back to California, and part of the, the, the tension was uh, I like to use public transportation because it's a lot cheaper. And the last uh, uh, public transportation Bay Area rapid transit train leaves the airport at midnight, which takes me back to Oakland, and that's uh, like about a $9 fare versus a $100 cab fare. So I think this is clearly God's will. And the way I had it lined out, we were leaving somewhere, who knows where, and changing planes in Chicago and then heading home. And I was going to be getting home about 6 o'clock in the evening. This should not be a problem, but we went through Chicago. So chaos and things late and not being, and it was ice cold and the plane had to get defrosted a couple of times. And what I realized was that my six o'clock flight landing in San Francisco is now landing at 9.30 and it's now landing at 11. Now it's landing at 11.20 and I have two checked bags. And I hated everybody. I hated the guy sitting next to me. I didn't even share a word with him, but I despised him. There was something about him that was loathsome. Um, as, as we're still at Chicago and not leaving, I want to yell at the poor stewardess saying, Can't you help me? Don't you know? I have to be... So at like seven years old. Um, and I finally got to uh, the airport and we landed and my bag, my second bag got off about five minutes after 12. And I went up to the nice man at the station, and I said, the last train is left. He said, yes. Now, it's after midnight on a very long day. I've been conscious most of the time and upset. And that was the first time all day I remembered to ask God for help. Um, you would think that would be at my fingertips, you know, as a professional God person. But I'll tell you, one of the things I think about a lot is me. And um, I have to be very awake to remember to include the higher power in any equation, because I think I'm doing just fine. Anyway, my moment of clarity at the San Francisco airport, uh, I didn't scream because... um, uh, my mother would have disapproved. We were not screamers. My brother married into an Italian family, and they screamed, and we didn't approve of that at all. We're repressed Northern Europeans, and we just resent and drop dead of heart attacks. But I remember standing by the, the baggage claim. I went, 
And it just kind of got some of the energy out. And then I remembered to ask God for help. And my next moment of clarity was, I've got to get a taxi. Whoever is driving the taxi does not deserve a crazy person in his taxi. Because it's not that guy's fault. And I remember asking God for help and discharging a little, did some breathing, and I hope I got a glass of water and peed. And I went outside and found a guy, and I said, can you take me home? And he said yes, and I got home. Uh, but my, the thought of asking for help or drinking some water uh, was, was not there at my fingertips. I've only been going to Al-Anon for about 30 years. So uh, it, 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 it takes a long time to remember the most basic things. You know? So last night wasn't so bad. Um, and I always bring things to read. Um, I'm from an alcoholic home and books were safe. I was at an Al-Anon meeting, my home group, uh, and people talked about running away from home when they were kids running away from home, running away from home. I never ran away from home. And I, I guess about four guys shared having run away from home, and I was feeling less than, you know. Clearly, I didn't try hard enough, and I'm not as bad as they are, and, and I felt shame. Um, and then I remembered the reason I didn't run away from home is because I read. I could leave the house without ever going outside the front door. And, and if this is still true. If I have enough books, I'm not anxious. Uh, and I know I have a little anxiety because I brought like four books with me to <laughs> Illinois for two days. Um, but I, if I have enough, and I mentioned that to someone and they said, well, you know, if you did you know, 20 years of therapy, you could have another way of handling that. And I said, I would just prefer to carry four books. Thank you very much. Uh, works for me. Uh, you want to find compulsions that don't kill you. So anyway, welcome here. I, uh, I'm happy to share with you this weekend, and, and I'll mention this again tomorrow. But if there's anything I say that's helpful, please use it. And if it's not helpful, don't worry about it. Uh, you can see things differently. You can perceive things differently. Many of us have different philosophical and theological and you know social points of view, and there's room enough for all of us. So if I say something that you just completely disagree with, you don't even have to mention that to me. You can work that out with your sponsor and just let me go home, okay? <laughs> give, me, give me permission to be wrong and uh, continue with your life. There are people that disagree with me on all kinds of things, and they have happy, productive lives, and I don't think that's fair. I think if they disagree with me, they should be miserable, and you could point them out in the crowd. Um, the fifth tradition, a friend of mine pointed this out to me last year. Each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. That's our purpose. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA. Our common welfare should come... Wait a minute. There's misprint. This is, this is this, not to point out errors, but there's some goofiness on this. Some sentences have splurged together here. I'm sure that's someone's fault, and they'll be punished later. <laughs> but here's how I remember it. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves. Um, we encourage... Uh, we, we, in Al-Anon, we encourage and understand our alcoholic relatives, and we welcome and give comfort to families of alcoholics. We encourage, we welcome, we give comfort. That's what we're about. Because so many of us, when we come into Al-Anon, we are refugees. We are running for our lives. We're, we've been badly burned. And, and burns take a long time to heal. Um, I'll mention that again tomorrow um, when I have some of my own literature with me. 
Um, I was at a meeting in Texas in the last few years, and the serenity prayer was talked about, and I like the serenity prayer. I use it regularly. I even use the short form of the serenity prayer a lot, which is help. Um, But this guy from Texas, I I can't tell you anything about him other than he was a a middle-aged white guy with some recovery. And he said in the serenity prayer, we talk about um, things we cannot change and we talk about things we can change. And the wisdom to know the difference. And this guy from Texas said, here are three things I cannot change. I cannot change the past. And I cannot change the truth. And I cannot change you. I was stunned. Because that cleared up my whole day. I don't know about you, but I can spend a lot of energy trying to change the past or change the truth. Let's put a spin on it. You can, you can become rich putting the spin on things in our country. Uh, or changing someone else. For years I tried to change my parents, and it doesn't go very well. Um, I'm a teacher, and I tried to change students, and uh, I, it just doesn't... You can't change anybody. So what can I change? I can change... This guy said three things. I can change my thinking. I can change my behavior. And I can change my attitudes. None of that's quick. And I I find usually I'm only willing to change my thinking, my behavior, or my attitudes when I'm in tremendous discomfort. <laughs> I don't, I don't, just because something seems like a good idea doesn't mean I'm going to do it. I mean, I, I need the extra motivation of pain or shame or humiliation. Then that might encourage me to do a few changes next year, but I, I don't change quickly. I was told by my sponsor that I should think glacially, you know, glaciers, uh, Tens of thousands of years, <laughs> and change happens, you know, and change happens. So I'm from an alcoholic home, and um, I can tell you this. I'm uh, almost 70. Uh, I just turned 68, but it's easier to say I'm almost 70. Uh, I started coming into Al-Anon in my mid to late 30s, I guess. Um, and I come into Al-Anon, I, I got... I, I got sober. I'm also an alcoholic. I'm in the other program. And um, if I had not gotten sober, I never would have found Al-Anon. I would have been dead long beforehand. And I got sober when I was 29 into Al-Anon a few years later. And what brought me into Al-Anon was misery. And it was my students. I didn't come into Al-Anon because of my parents or my family or my I, I basically left them as soon as I could. Emotionally and physically, I left home when I was 18. Gladly. Looking for freedom. <laughs> where's the border? I, one of my favorite uh, questions, I, you know, where's Canada, where's Mexico? You just need to know, you know. So, so if you have to get out of Dodge, you know, you can. Let's get out of here. Um, but we had, we had alcoholism in the family, and um, we didn't call it alcoholism. We, like so many alcoholic families, we not just practiced, we lived denial. And we didn't talk about alcoholics. We talked around alcoholism. We used euphemism. We used circumlocution. We used code. But we didn't say, oh, God, she's drunk. We never said that. Um, on the Swedish Lutheran Republican side of the family, we didn't have alcoholics. We had nervous people. (laughs) And some of them would be so nervous, they would be hospitalized. And then they'd come out. uh, In fact, one of my cousins, we're we're Swedish people right off the boat. We are. I'm surrounded by people with accents uh, when I was growing up, um, including my mother. Um, But we'd, one of my cousins 
had DTs at a family gathering, and uh, of course, everyone was quite surprised. And it was referred to as his nervous spell when he had his nervous spell. <laughs> yeah. Um, my mom was surrounded by alcoholics, and she never spotted it. Like, she couldn't see it. And she didn't want to learn anything about it. She preferred worry as a lifestyle. If you just worry enough, the children will be safe. Um, so I was sober for a while myself. And my mom called me. And every 8 or 12 years, we could have an honest conversation for almost an hour, perhaps, and um, without all the kabuki, weird dance stuff. You could just talk heart to heart. It happened a couple times. Um, and she one, was wondering about one of the neighbors. And I said, what's up? And she said, well, he's a nice man but he parks his car on his lawn and then falls asleep next to the car. And what did I think? And again, you know, with the wisdom of Solomon, I said, uh, does he drink much? And she said, of course not, but he's very nervous. So when my mom saw alcoholism, she, she really, she, nervous. And she was the youngest daughter of a very large Swedish farm family. And uh, there were like 10 or 11 or 12 kids, big farm families. And her mother was a very nervous person. Okay, got it. Um, on the Irish Catholic Democratic side of the family, we didn't, we didn't have alcoholics either. We had characters. <laughs> and they would say things like, Sean is sure a character, and what that meant was don't let him drive, you know. But again, I just didn't know that. And I was well into my 30s before I had any glimmer about the family code. A cancer wasn't talked about either. Uh, if you had cancer, you weren't feeling well. Uh, and it probably also meant it was time to call hospice as soon as my mom noticed you weren't feeling well. One of my brothers had major cancer operations, weird stuff growing inside of him. And, and he was a very young father at the time. And it was just a nightmare. And my mother refers to that as his difficult year. <laughs> you can't say the word cancer. You can't say alcoholism. There's all kinds of things you can't say. You can't say depression. You can't say mental illness. We're going to talk around these. So I was, um, uh, I went into the Jesuits. I, I, I was taught by Jesuits uh, in San Jose, and, and the men who taught me were bright and interesting, and they were teachers, and I've always been drawn to uh, education and learning and, and a good teacher. And so I, I, I didn't have a huge mystical experience. I just wanted to be a good guy like the men who taught me, and, and I've spent the last 50 years there. Um, and an awful lot of us uh, who go into uh, communities like that uh, have alcoholism or drug addiction or suicide or mental illness in the immediate families. That's kind of interesting. An awful lot of us who have alcoholism or drug addiction in the family, we become uh, uh, nurses, uh, social workers, teachers, um, we join the Marine Corps in very large numbers, uh, and we go out to rescue left and right, you know. We join the police force. Um, we do all kinds of things, and, and all of those things are good, but we don't take care of ourselves. Uh, we become clergy persons. We don't take care of ourselves, and the burnout rates are very, very high. So I, I go into the, the community when I was 18 years old, and I... Uh, uh, became a high school teacher, and I loved it. I loved it. I taught at uh, the Jesuit High School in downtown Los Angeles, and and I felt alive in the classroom. I could, I could. It was my first real job. It was transformative, and it was hard work, and it was exciting. And uh, there is something about me that likes excitement, and I like stimulation, and I like danger, and I like crisis, and. Um, uh, Helping someone with an ambulance in the background always perked me up. So do that for a while, and you get pretty tired. And what draws me into Al-Anon, I'm sober now for a couple of years, what draws me into Al-Anon 
were two things looking back on it. One was exhaustion and the other was rage. <laughs> I know I know you don't get angry in Illinois, but um, <laughs> as I mentioned when I began speaking this evening there at the airport, I was, I heard an English person talk about being angry and she said that she was incandescent. And so angry, you were, you know, glowing. Uh, and that was me. I can still get like that. I I mentioned at a meeting in Los Angeles once that I still get angry. And this person said to me, if you were really spiritual, you would never get angry. And I said to this person, after pausing for just a moment, <laughs> that's very helpful. <laughs> so sarcasm is a problem for me, too. Um <laughs> And and I when I'm surrounded by fools, I just find that the day gets really long, you know. Um, my program gives me the tools that I can use when I get really angry, when I remember to use the tools. But I get angry. Um, so I'm, uh, but anger and exhaustion. I was leading a weekend out in Riverside, California, which is just this side of the moon. And it was an AA Al-Anon weekend, and I'm teaching uh, Monday to Friday, and then I'm on this weekend retreat with a bunch of men and women, and there's AA and Al-Anon, and there was a Saturday night meeting, and the AAs allowed the Al-Anons to speak, which is always so gracious of them. And um, so I heard Al-Anon, I think it was the first time in my life, I heard Al-Anon, and, and uh, it was a couple... Um, she was the alcoholic and he was the Al-Anon and he said, in Al-Anon I learn how to live with a crazy person and not go crazy myself. I heard that because I was feeling crazy. I was with all these kids and, and I, a lot of high school kids look and act like alcoholics. A lot of alcoholics look and act like high school kids. I mean, it goes back and forth there. Uh, most of them grow out of it, um, the high school kids, but it's, it, they have drama and trauma and crisis and emergencies and, and huge mood changes, and they're extremely unpredictable and full of energy. Um, and I was exhausted. And You give and you give and you give and you give. And they take and they take and they take and then blame you for not giving more. The anger. The anger and the exhaustion. And I, uh, anyway, I heard that man talk about not going crazy. And I felt crazy. I felt volatile, uh, moody, um, mean. When I'm real tired, that comes out. So I talked to my sponsor about getting to some Al-Anon. And my sponsor is also the, he's a sober alcoholic who's the adult child of an alcoholic and a Catholic priest in Los Angeles named Terry. And he, he suggested this could be a good thing for me. And I uh, looked uh, around for meetings and there were a couple of meetings not far from me. And the first Al-Anon meeting I go to, I mean, you just walk in cold, you know, mostly women. There were like four men sitting in the back. I sat in the back with, with the men, with the manly men, I'm sitting in the back. And um, at this particular meeting, there was a woman who ran the meeting, and I think she had been secretary since Harry Truman was in the White House, something like that. And in her defense, she was full of common sense. She was very practical and she was very smart. She also ran the meeting like the communists run North Korea. <laughs> and they read the stuff at meetings like we do a lot. I mean, I don't know. I, I have been to meetings where there's 20 minutes of, you know, let's read everything we can find before anyone shares. Makes me crazy. Um, so um, they read, and then people would, would come to her with their problems and they would present her with their problems and she would solve them. That was the meeting. Maybe an hour and a half's worth. And in, again, she, she, it was kind of like talking to Martha Stewart 
uh, or Heloise. You know, I mean, this she had a lot of practical stuff, but that's not Alanon. That's not Alan. We don't do that when we're sane. Um, we don't give advice. I can give advice to anybody five minutes after I meet them. It's one of my gifts. And I have to remember that so much is none of my business. Keep my own mouth shut. And a lot of my Al-Anon program is when I'm not talking. Because um, I have a lot to say. I remember once, I, again, the San Francisco airport, I was lost. I was going to pick someone up. I was at a part of the airport that I hadn't been in before, and I was disoriented, and I did not know where I was. This is literally true. And there were two women, mother, daughter. Um, English was not their first language. They were chattering it away, and whatever they were chattering away. But they were lost too, and I, who was lost, went up to the two women who were lost and said, can I help you? Now, only in Al-Anon do people laugh at that um, because a lot of other people don't get how crazy that is. And the younger woman realized I was crazy and just backed off. They ran, they ran for their lives. So a lot of stuff is none of my business, and I have to remember that a lot of stuff is none of my business. Whew. So um, anyway, I, I went to that meeting a couple of times, and I, I never liked it. I never liked it. I never relaxed for two seconds. I started going to other meetings where things like the traditions were observed. And I started going to other meetings where people shared their experience. And then I stumbled across my friend Sally F. Um, Sally gave me a cassette tape. This is how long ago it was, a cassette tape about a, an Al-Anon speaker from Texas named Blanche. And Blanche was my introduction into, really my introduction into Al-Anon thinking. And Blanche was a teacher too. Teachers, we understand each other. Um, we suffer more than many, and we understand each other. And I, I, I would listen to that cassette tape over and over and over and over again. And one of the things Blanche said, she, she was a school teacher out in um, uh, West Texas, uh, Odessa Midland. Um, if you ever watch a fine TV show called Friday Night Lights, it's that part of Texas. And football is the king. It's just extraordinary. Anyway, uh, Blanche was there and... I listened and I listened and I listened and she started teaching me a couple of very important things. Um, some slogans. She said um, when she grew up in northern Florida, she heard God helps those who help themselves. And she said that's not true, you know. God helps those who ask. And I, I have to remember to ask. Like my moment at the San Francisco airport after a day of complete frenzy. Ask God for help. She also said growing up in northern Florida, um, she was taught what you don't know can't hurt you. And she said, listen, what I did not know about alcoholism almost killed four people. So she gave me permission to learn a lot more, not just bluff it uh, or pretend, but to actually do some reading and some listening and some learning about how this disease worked and how recovery worked, get a better education. And that helped. I, I took a couple of classes and I listened to some people very carefully. I found a couple of women and men who were in recovery world, and as they talked, I could hear them, and so I would listen to them on cassette over and over again. And Blanche taught me a lot. Uh, and then, oh, it was Thanksgiving weekend, and I was asked to come to somewhere in Texas and talk, somewhere in Houston. Texas is an enormous reality. And... Uh, um, it was a Thanksgiving weekend uh, uh, work, uh, conference, 
And I was there, and I couldn't get in Friday night because of some very important reason, but I got in Saturday. I was going to be the Sunday morning spiritual speaker. We found a priest who's sober. Let's have him talk. And um, I flew in Saturday night and got there, and they, they had all the speakers at the same table. Uh, and I, I got there late, and, and, uh, but I'm sure dressed just like this. I am not the natty dresser, I'm sorry. I, I don't wear ties, and I don't wear socks, and that's just how it works. And some people find that unforgivable, and uh, it's not going to change me. Um, so uh, I, anyway, th- there were these people around the table, and there was this woman of a certain age. And the chair next to her was was empty, and I reached out, I said, hi, I'm Tom, and she said, hi, I'm Blanche. And I had heard her voice, you know, for hours, and I said, you saved my life! And I tried not to startle her. Um, but she really did. She had a way of talking Al-Anon that I could hear. Um, My sponsor has encouraged this, and I've seen it happen in the program. When we share, learn how to speak simply and clearly from the heart. Um, This is not a head trip. This is not a workshop. This is not a class. It's It's a different energy. And Blanche would say that when she would speak at conferences. She would say, I'm not here as a performer I'm here as a participant, and this weekend I might share a couple of things that are very vulnerable, and I hope you will respect that in the fellowship, that this is, this is how it is. Um, it's not stand-up, you know. Well, she taught me things. Uh, one of the books I read that I found very helpful was It Will Never Happen to Me, and it's uh, by Claudia Black, and it's about being an adult child of an alcoholic, and If there was a lot of alcoholism or any alcoholism drug addiction when you're growing up, you grow up as a survivor and you develop survival skills. There's nothing bad with any of those survival skills. And when I'm caught by surprise, I fall back on survival skills. But you don't learn how to live. The conversation in Al-Anon is learning how to live, not just learning how to survive. So Claudia Black in It Will Never Happen to Me said, um, there are three rules in alcoholic families. Rule number one is don't talk. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about the drinking. We're not going to talk about the unemployment. We're not going to talk about the mental illness. We're not going to talk about the sexual abuse. We're not going to talk about all kinds of things. Don't talk. My family sure practice that. Rule two, don't trust. Uh, Today's confidence becomes tomorrow's ammunition. And you, you never... Uh, let people know what's really going on. Keep your cards close to your chest. You know, um, don't tell anyone too much. So you learn to be very secretive, and and that's one of the things I've noticed about a lot of craziness for me is how many secrets have to be kept, and how you can't tell anyone the whole story. And some of that's fear and some of that shame. I mean, you can analyze it in a dozen different ways. But, but I found I, I developed this survival skill as a kid. If the topic that was being talked about was dangerous, I would change the subject. I got very good at this. And I could use humor to do this. I could use humor or sarcasm to do that. And I was uh, sober maybe three or four months, and I was seeing a wonderful therapist named Leonard. Um, and I guess I was seeing him eight or ten or twelve times, and he intervened, and he said, 
When some subjects come up, you hold your breath and change the topic. I mean, a good therapist pays attention. Nurses do this all the time. They watch. I was completely unaware of this. And I said, really? He says, yes, and I'll point it out the next time you do it. But what you're, you're avoiding, you know. And I, I found out I had developed that skill. If I'm uncomfortable, let's change the subject. Let's hold our breath. So learning how to stay with an uncomfortable subject is a big part of recovery. Learning how to talk about stuff. Learning how to trust some people. And rule three you don't, you don't talk, you don't trust, and you don't feel. Because how do you feel? You feel lousy. I don't want to feel angry. I don't want to feel sad. So I'll just shut down. Thank you very much. And I found for some of us from uh, alcoholic homes, one of our survival skills was shutting down. Don't think, don't feel, hold your breath. Don't get noticed. As soon as you can, run for the border. Survival. So recovery in Al-Anon for me has been learning how to talk about some things. Learning how to trust some people. And being someone that people can trust. And then learning how to feel. It was a whole new language. I don't want to feel feelings. I'd rather think about feelings. I don't know if you're like that. It's so much cleaner. Um, it's so much more efficient, you know. But feeling can just knock me out. Um, in my own use of alcohol and uh, non-habit forming marijuana, one of the two things that's nice about both of those is they sedate you. And so you're just sedate. And everything's fine. With occasional explosions and volcanoes. But off booze and dope, emotions start coming up. And and I found this terrifying. I remember starting to talk to Leonard about this. I said, I think I'm losing my mind. And the reason I thought I was losing my mind was because I was starting to have emotions. And I went to meetings and everyone was grateful. I don't know if you've been to meetings where everyone's grateful for every golden step and their sponsors. Um, it's, it's just too perky to be bared. Um, I'm not, I mean, I, I, what about the bad days? Oh, there are no bad days. If you really work the program, well, you're not my sponsor. Um, learning how to share. So I was in a meeting and a fellow talked about being on the roller coaster. Up and down and sharp turns and whooshes around and loop-de-loops. And he said he just found it exhausting to be on that emotional roller coaster. And it gave me a couple of things. One was a clear visual for what was going on. I was on the roller coaster too. And the other was, uh, there's two of us. I'm not the only person who's having these feelings. Because everyone else was very grateful for every golden step. And I find sometimes at a meeting it is really helpful just to say today is really a long day. Today I hate everybody and I showed up anyway. And I'm going to stay to the end of the meeting. And I'm going to stack chairs. <laughs> Science of advanced recovery in my book. <sighs> so um, coming into Al-Anon, I, a few more things. Um, I, I think my, my relationship with the Al-Anon program, it's a lot like stopping smoking. A lot of people stop smoking a couple of times before they stop smoking. And I find a lot of us join Al-Anon a couple of times before we join Al-Anon. Because, you know, the fire goes out and uh, the alcoholic dies or leaves or graduates. And you say, oh, now it's fine. And then the next chapter opens, you know. Um, I talked about, you know, anger and 
exhaustion, two of my favorite topics, and um, that I found Al-Anon to be very helpful for me in my Basic point of view is most people I know could use 100,000 Al-Anon meetings. Won't fix them, but it will take the edge off. 100,000 meetings. Well, could you find me a really good Al-Anon meeting? And I say, don't. There are no good Al-Anon meetings. You just go. It's like saying, can you find me a really nice chemotherapist? There are no nice chemotherapists. You just go. And it'll save your life. And you will develop gratitude, but you're not going to be happy at your first three or four hundred Al-Anon meetings. Um, so anyway, I mentioned that, and this lady came up to me uh, after a meeting, AA, and she said, I'm seven years sober and I hate everyone. Should I go to Al-Anon? And I said, hold out as long as you can. You know? Um, if you get there too soon, you'll hate everybody. You say, oh my God, they're knitting. I can't go back. I have too much self-respect. Adults holding stuffed animals. I can't go back in that room. You know, or adults crying or people angry. They were so angry in there. Really? Can't imagine why. Um, but if you're desperate, if you have the gift of desperation, Al-Anon looks good. Al-Anon looks good. And the women and men in Al-Anon look good to you. And you realize we are in desperate need of... <laughs> we are in desperate need of welcome, comfort, understanding, compassion, and support. And so many of us are just exhausted and mad. I didn't know I was mad. Um, I thought I was right. <laughs> and I can still get there. I can get to the place where, for the common good, we're going to have to cut off some heads. And um, yours is the first to go, and don't take this personally. Uh, everyone will feel better afterwards, including you. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, uh, I have no proof for this, this is, but this is my uh, own little spiritual devotion. I think that Agatha Christie grew up in an alcoholic home. And one of the things you do in alcoholic homes is you plot the perfect murder. <laughs> you know? Um, and it can, be, it can be quite a topic at some meetings. I mentioned this to uh, uh, one of our Al-Anon um, members, Mary Pearl, who's from a state not far from here, Arkansas. And she talked about uh, almost drowning her husband one night, which I think is one of the great Al-Anon stories, and she can tell it for you. I just think it's superb. Uh, but she's a nurse, and she was going to drown him because he was awful. And um, uh, at, when the bubble stopped, she it occurred to her to pause and she pulled him out and gave him artificial respiration and dried him off and dragged him to bed and put pajamas on him and blow dried his hair. I think that's one of the best things. And again, in Al-Anon we find that hilarious because she did the whole cycle in an evening. And I, I was so inspired by that story. So I went back to Oakland and we were going to have a day in Al-Anon, summertime, hot day, wooden church, miserable. And I suggest, we need, if we could talk about anger or violence or something, you know, because it's such a nasty subject. You know? Oh, I'm never angry. Yeah. Um, so we called it Murderous Thoughts. And it was a Saturday afternoon workshop. Of course, the room was full. And the lady running the thing, she was superb. She was hilarious and she was funny and she talked very candidly about getting rid of the one kid who was the problem and, you know, the, the things you were going to do. Uh, and anyway, she, people shared it was a great, it was a great uh, uh, thing. And so the next year we were going to do it again. But instead of calling it murderous thoughts, we advanced to calling it, what would you do with the body? And I think that's a question, you know. 
like Agatha Christie, you, it's plotting the perfect murder. What would you do with the body? So I bumped into Mary Pearl um, a year or two later, and I mentioned that to her, and I said, you are such an inspiration to me because you talk about things a lot of other people don't talk about, and I find that really helpful other than every step is golden and my sponsor is a genius. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's all true, but... What about rage? <laughs> um, so I asked Mary Pearl, what were you going to do with the body? And she said, first things first, kill the son bitch. <laughs> I understand that. Oh, my. Um, I, a couple of, of, of other things with, with Al-Anon. I, I also am very, very grateful for the Al-Anon focus with adult children. Um, I've tried, I mean, many, there are many faces to Al-Anon. And some of us are there because we marry alcoholics. I don't get that. I have never wanted to marry an alcoholic in my life. <laughs> but I know people who have married alcoholic after alcoholic after alcoholic and then go out looking for the next. Um, I did a wedding once of a woman named Pam. Her father was alcoholic, her first husband alcoholic, second husband alcoholic, third, and the fourth was a sober alcoholic. And with the wisdom of Solomon, I said, do you see a pattern here? No, no, no. One was tall, one was short, one was fat, one was thin. There's no pattern here. And I said, oh, okay. Um, but I've never been interested in marrying an alcoholic. Um, and I don't have alcoholic children or grandchildren. I mean, that's the whole new group coming into Al-Anon, our parents and grandparents. And only another parent or grandparent understands that. Because um, it's its own special layer of hell. You know? And I'm there as the adult child, and I can talk to other adult children and be present for other adult children and even sponsor a couple of other adult children. And I went to a meeting, and, and we were talking about slogans that help, and this is my last part for tonight, and then I'm running a little over. We'll just stop and try again tomorrow morning. Um, act, don't react. Act. Don't react. I'm a reactor. I'm the youngest child. I'm the mascot. I'm the comedian. I'm the peacemaker. I always, and this is a little embarrassing, and please don't repeat this, I've always kind of identified with Henry Kissinger. Um, you know, going between the warring parties as the diplomat. Uh, let's go to Beijing, let's go to Moscow, let's go back to Washington, let's all be friends. I have done that over and over and over again, and I saw it as one of my valued roles in the family. Why am I full of bullet holes? Why am I full of bullet holes? Um, So um, I react. Uh, you come at me with anger, I respond with anger. You come at me with fear, I respond with fear. Um, I will be whoever you want me to be. I will, I will blend in. I will meld. I will. And so who's, who's home? Who am I? I don't know. I just want to make you happy. <laughs> Why am I tired all the time? Um, there's a, oh, we did this at, at a church in San Francisco once at Grace Cathedral. We sang codependent songs. There's a million of them. And we had to stop because we were all so depressed. <laughs> by, <laughs> by song number eight, we all wanted to hang ourselves. And I think that's a sign that the meeting has gone off focus when everyone wants to hang themselves. But one of the songs was, uh, you know, I want to be happy, but I can't be happy till I make you happy too. A hundred thousand Al-Anon meetings will help in that situation. Um, but I, I, so learn to act rather than react, to act, which means I need to be focused and awake and centered and awake. And I don't get pulled into your drama or your trauma or your crises. A lot of stuff is none of my business. And this is real true with family stuff. Act. Don't react. Blanche said this in that first tape that I heard of hers. And this will be my last point for tonight. She said, in Al-Anon, 
we learn how to keep our sails out of other people's wind. And that was an image. That, I mean, I, I like images that I can remember, like roller coaster. Keep my sails out of other people's wind. And there's a lot of wind blowing. <laughs> and I don't have to go along with it. I can say no to all kinds of things. Lots of fights are not my fights. Lots of arguments are not my arguments. I have a niece who was involved in very complicated stuff. And everyone had a point of view. And I called her and I just said, I just want you to know I have no opinion. <laughs> and if you ever want to talk, I'm happy to listen, but I have no opinion. And she just said, thank you. I mean, what do I know? You know? So welcome to uh, Al-Anon. Welcome to Friday night and Saturday, and we'll share some experience, strength, and hope, and a little bit of recovery. And we do this a day at a time. Uh, and one other, you know, one one more last point. I'll mention this tomorrow morning. The way I was raised in recovery is the twelve-step programs. You know, AA, Al-Anon, NAOA, all the programs. We are friends. We are companions, and we are allies. We are friends. We are companions, and we are allies. And when I go to different meetings, I need to speak the language of the meeting. You know, in NA I talk NA, in AA I talk AA, in Al-Anon I want to talk Al-Anon. And it might take a while to learn that language, but I know of more than one A who go, AA who goes to Al-Anon convinced they all want to hear his story, and we don't. Just, we are not as fascinated by you as you are. Um, <laughs> So, to, but, but we are friends and we are companions and we are allies and we do this together and the world of recovery is broad and it's open to many things and lots of people belong to more than one 12-step program and I think that's good news. I don't see that as a bad thing. Now you will find people who disagree with everything I've just said and, and they get to and they get to be as miserable as they want to be. But I don't want to live there one day at a time. So anyway... That's all I know. Now what happens? <laughs> Mangiare. Um, we should maybe end with the serenity prayer and then run to the cake table. You have to get there before the selfish people do. Remember that. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage and the wisdom to know the difference. Hooray! Thank you.